0: The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 39. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. A couple of things first, before we get into the interview. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts. And there you can join my Eating Liberty Facebook group and check out all of us who are in there chatting away. You can also follow me on Twitter and Minds and Gab and Bitbacker.io. You can also subscribe to my YouTube cooking channel, and also support me with Patreon, Bitcoin, or PayPal. There's a lot going on on that page. You can also support the show with a positive review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcatcher. A big five-star thank you to Rayaboy for the nice review and five-star rating. Rayaboy is also host of his own podcast, I on 2020, offering a libertarian Observation of the goings-ons in D.C. and in politics in general. Episode 117 dives into the deceptions and interest in starting war with Iran, which really only about nine people care to do. Nobody else wants a war. Ray publishes a new episode each day and tackles some pretty big issues. Find his podcast at his webpage, Eye on the Empire, Dot com. For you coffee or tea or whiskey drinkers, I have a new coffee mug store. I add new mug designs frequently and can also talk to you about a custom mug. Click over to libertarian.com slash gearbubble. That's cornerlibertariancom slash gearbubble. You see the selections and make your purchase. As listeners of this show, you've heard me mention the courses on economics and politics and history at Liberty Classroom. Now, there's coupons for each level of subscription so you can save some bread, baking pun intended, as you bite back against the education from the state. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash bite to see the coupon codes and then click through to subscribe and save some bread. Bite back against the failed education from the state and the coupons at culinarylibertarian.com slash bite back. My guest today is Azur and we're talking the cooking of India. Zur is in the food service business and has an incredible palate for flavors. Zur is from India, but during the past 20 plus years has spent time cooking in Saudi Arabia, Ontario, Canada, and various locations in the U.S., cooking both classical and nouveau French cuisine, Asian, and of course Indian. We get into a bit of cooking philosophy, which means how did everyday Indians cook Compared to what's printed on the page, we discuss how cooks, both home and professional, can get closer to the authentic ideas of a regional food by knowing the cooking processes over adhering to just those words on the page. We did struggle with some tech issues on his side, and I've cleaned that up the best I could. You can definitely hear him, but there are a few pops and scratches, but it's well worth your time. Welcome, Azur, to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Dan. So before we get into any of this, I suppose if anybody really cares, uh, we have a bit of a history. I think we figured out it's been about 15 years, <laughs> maybe a little longer, uh, that we worked together at the Governor's Club uh, private dining well, club in Tallahassee, Florida. So it wasn't that I just saw your resume someplace online. I said, hey, let me ask this guy about Indian cooking. I'm asking you about Indian cooking because I happen to know you're really good at Indian cooking. So that's why you're here. So now that we've gotten that probably unnecessary disclosure out of the way, give us just a little bit of your background in cooking, please. Uh,
1: So I got involved with cooking at an extremely early age. Uh, when I used to help my mom uh, just get dinner ready or uh, do a small get together for family. And my mom and my, I would say my parental side, uh, that my mom's uh, brothers and their whole family were very much into cooking and cooking different types of food. So a lot of it started at a very early age, you know, at the dinner table where we talked and ate. And we used to have, uh, my mom has nine brothers and no sisters. So she was, uh, I would say, the center for all her nine brothers and their families. And we would have quite a few large gatherings where we would be cooking in bulk, uh, in quantity, cooking at home. Uh, And I don't remember too much whether we ate outside in restaurants and the baton of uh, having those family events was always passed within the family from one group to the other and do a bunch of potlucks and so on and so forth so that that was my earlier uh, involvement with food and different types of cooking techniques and skills and as i grew older there was a there was a time when i was really interested in the chef world uh, which was a very new concept in india uh, during the time i was finishing my graduation and in india there were, there were three mainstreams of uh, being a graduate science mathematics or biology and i i know you'll find this odd but uh i got a bachelor's in science And, uh, but I I was really interested in food. And that's when Institute of Management came across to me as a different world where I would be able to look at some of my skills. And having done my culinary school uh, came the urge to do well, uh, came the urge to travel across the world. Because it opened up Pandora's box for me. Where there was more than Indian food. And it was French, and uh, Italian, and you go on, American, and, and the list just goes on. Now, when I worked in India, obviously, you know, it's always like the food which is closest to you, you just take it for granted. And uh, I always focused on uh, French food and tried to learn it from some of the best French chefs and worked with a couple of French chefs. Uh, but as uh, now that I've been in the U.S. for the last uh, 20 years, i have started realizing now <laughs> that everything which is available so easily it's american food french you have the availability now i'm steering back to remembering all the flavors of india and the and food has always been a sort of an emotional attachment for me it reminds me of time smells places and people and being in an, Having been an immigrant or migrated to the United States, uh, yeah, I relate to those, peop- those emotional attachments with food and people, memories of my childhood as well as uh, early years of my uh, adolescence or growing up years where I went through college and uh, started looking into a career in the hospitality and food business. And here I am now. After X amount of years,
0: <laughs> and and here you are now. India is a big place, uh, seven territories, twenty nine states. That's that's a lot. That's it's kind of like saying there's a kind of an American food. Can we say there is such a thing as Indian cooking? Um, between that vast space, there's coastal and inland and northern and southern. So, what? This is maybe not a fair question but is there something that ties together all of these territories and regions and states?
1: I don't think there is a single cooking technique or food item which would bind and tie all those 29 states and territories. But what I can think about the only some of the common ties are uh, culture, religion, language, demographics and ethnic backgrounds that uh, as you, I, okay
0: i want to ask you so about, as, go ahead what is what is the, in a, in a country that vast what is the culture that's tying them together
1: so culture is a, an extremely broad uh complex mix when it comes to india so we look at culture uh, with which is associated with religion and then, along with religion, comes the demographic location of those uh, religion religious groups or ethnic ethnicity or ethnical backgrounds. So that's how I would look at culture when it comes to India.
0: Okay. And then, is is there just one language?
1: Uh, no, uh, there is not one. I think the unifying language in india would be thanks to the colonization it would be english ah. uh, so that would be i mean you could get away with talking english practically everywhere in india but every part of india has a different language it has a different dialect so even if you choose say if you choose a state a southern state like karnataka or tamil Nadu. Uh, you would travel for maybe in every 300, 400 miles, you may get a different version of a language with a different dialect. And the same goes with the north part of India. Uh, in Indian food, as complex as Indian food is, the culture is not less complex. And neither is the, hmm. the demography of the country as such, where you get right from snow capped mountains to the coastals to the heat to the desert, you name it. I mean, there is not a single climate I can think of which is not included in 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 India. I, I really can't think of anything which I have not seen. Right from uh, rains, monsoons to uh,
0: all of it. Well, I think that probably the reason we, being Westerners, Americans, have such little exposure. Is well, it's far away, and there are some things that are much easier to transport. So one of the, I th- I think one of the first things people associate with Indian food, uh, probably two things, and they're combined. One is <laughs> it's just really hot, spicy hot, which probably <laughs> is not like Thai food. There is plenty of Thai food that is not just incredibly hot, but th- that's sort of a, a signature feature. Uh, the other thing, right or wrong, I think that Indian food is recognized for it, is curry powder. Now, now curry can be it's it's its own <laughs> it's its own study; it's a whole career. But uh, accepting that, those are the two things. Uh, what are some of the? How, how does curry tie together? Or does it tie together all of this this country? Is it is it something that we could say, wow? this actually does apply in 29 states? Um, I wouldn't say
1: curry. I mean, for me, in my world, curry is a bastardized word of masala, which is a direct direct result of uh, colonization of those countries. I mean, there is no English word, there's no Indian word which says curry. I mean, that's, that's like, there isn't anything I have ever come across. We never said curry, or curry. When we were growing up, we never called anything curry. Okay.
0: So for you, it would have been garam masala.
1: It would have been masala. It wouldn't have been garam masala. So garam masala, garam in Indian language or Hindi, is hot. Ah. And masala is bas- basically a blend and spice mix which goes together. Now garam masala ne- is not necessarily hot, spicy. But it is it is spice which is hot in the it has a, it has like a, a delayed effect. So it doesn't heat you up initially. It doesn't heat up your tongue immediately, but it does kick it in afterwards after you consume it. And they use Garmasala for many reasons for tenderizing. They use it as a preservative uh, because if you go into the history of Indian food, as you mentioned, you know in, the, in terms of transportation water scarcity, there were some challenges uh, of uh, the food prepared, and they also believed they we did, I mean, for many years, there was in some of the tropical areas, one would not allow the food to stay for too long, uh, depending on the humidity level. So spices and masalas were used to practically preserve the food without having a requirement to either refrigerate or reheat or keep it at a hot zone, and still keep the food safe to
0: eat. Now, that is something I didn't know. Because I'm I'm familiar with the fact that I've got probably one or two different kinds of masala in my cabinet, but I didn't realize it was also the preservative. makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Yes. Um, I mean, it... Go ahead. So, there is nothing like curry. I, I mean, curry
1: is... I don't know what to tell you about curry. It's just... It's like...
0: Well, so let let me ask you this then. So when when most people use the word curry, they mean the dried mix of spices. Uh, if, we, if we look at, like I mentioned, Thailand. Thailand has, and maybe the coastal regions do too in India, there's the fresh paste of lemongrass and garlic and onions and peppers. And I mean, who knows what else is in there. Is there. Is that a masala in India? Does that even exist as a product?
1: It does. Uh, it does. It may not have the same exact spice mix, but the only thing, only ingredient I have found common in all the curries I've read is turmeric. Uh, that that is the only common ingredient I have come across. So if you look at some of the Asian spices or the South Asian as well as the Indian spices, which are related with curry, they have turmeric as of the spices. So I'm not sure exactly where the word curry came from and curry usually is associated so if you do curry powder it's a it's associated with dry spice mix but a curry if it's in a wet form or a paste form or in a liquid form i would associate that with a sauce uh, so the different you know i mean when you look at the thai curry you assume when you see it on a menu the Thai curry is something which has a sauce in it,
0: right? Like the red, the green, of the masaman.
1: And the same thing with Indian curry, but then you right, but so you have a curry powder which, which I've noticed if it's an Indian curry powder, it has three one of the three basic ingredients, and uh, it's turmeric, it's uh, cumin, and it's coriander powder. But I guess as people sell different curry mixes, they add and subtract. But common three ingredients is what this is what my understanding of curry is
0: well and so i mean we've we've probably i don't recall specifically but i'm sure we've probably made our own mixes when we were in tallahassee but and so i knew enough that it was a mix but uh that that it was always turmeric was i'm not probably common
1: yeah and turmeric if you if you look into its uh uh nutritional values and everything what it does it's it is and it it is an antioxidant it's uh, prevents you from disinfection from infections of the stomach uh and it's a very common uh medical treatment give it so you. you have turmeric tablets you we i remember when growing up if we ever got cut on our hands or legs uh they used to get a turmeric paste and just apply it and it used to be fine uh, really? Yes. You'd be shocked. Just plain turmeric and water and you apply it on a wound and your wound will heal. It's a guarantee. <laughs> hmm. There's no ifs and buts of it. So fascinating. It's, it's, it, yes. It is very fascinating when it comes to how little we know of some of these spices which
0: have been used traditionally for I don't know how many odd years. Well, thousands probably. Uh, let's talk a little bit about cooking techniques. Mm. Uh, One of the things that I think is probably the most known in Indian cooking would be the tandoor. Um, And it's possible that people don't know what that is. So what is a tandoor?
1: Uh, Tandoor is basically a clay oven. You have different shapes and forms of tandoor. Uh, It's developed mainly in the northern part of India where they would have these clay ovens. And when I look at a clay oven, it's, it's, it can be different versions of it. It could be a hole in the ground. The sides of that oven are coated with a clay material, which becomes into a natural non-stick area. They usually put the coals. Uh, now you have gas tindoors, uh, as they have electric tandoors. But the old school was either it was firewood or it was coals, which were put into the bottom of that clay oven. And it was designed as, a, I wouldn't say a pyramid, but as a dome with a with the, with the lip of the opening being a small, like a bottle. And the base would be broad. The sides would be clay. And they would use it to cook different types of food, right from meats to vegetables to uh, flatbreads. Uh, the clay on the sides of it was designed is they would take the flat bread and stick it onto the side of those those ovens. And it would not fall off, and then they would just scrape it off, and that, that's how the breads would cook. So not it is like a inverted pizza oven. If you look at it, the only thing is that the flatbread would stick to the clay oven. Now, the skewered meats would be on long, uh, I would say, three-feet skewers, where they would be able to put pieces of meat. And uh, depending on different techniques and how well people are used to the tandoor, they would be able to adjust the heat with, with a small window in the bottom uh, of whether they want to cook the meat slowly or not. And the other thing what tandoors used to be used that so once the coal and the clay tandoors would, re- they would remain hot for nearly six, seven hours, even after switching them off. And once you get that cold, so they would take all the lentils and stews, uh, uh, all the beans, put them in water and let it cook in that heat overnight or even for six, seven hours. In that same heat, it would stew and then you would have your lentil stews or dals, different types of dals ready for uh, either supper or the next day.
0: So it tandoor is kind of like a hearth. Yes. And so, I mean... One of the things that I think we're used to seeing in, in America is the the open fire, and then you pull coals or um, or, or logs—not fire logs, but you know the the embers to one side, and and do your roasting on just you know open flame. Like, I mean, there's a, the uh, the book "Cooking with Fire" is all about hearth cooking. Ooh, yes, it's it's, <laughs> it's a fascinating read, but it sounds so. Is my guess? This is just trying to puzzle this out. Is that the tandoor was to some degree portable and possibly originated with nomadic people, or is that is that a bad guess?
1: I the memories I have and what I remember seeing were tandoors are built outside the house. It's it's like when you go to Italy, everybody has a clay pizza oven in the the back. So I don't think it was something which was transported. What's available right now, and you're absolutely correct, is you do get portable tandoors. Uh, What may may have been transported initially would be directly the clay ovens without uh, the ground and everything associated with it. so, like you see a hot oven, which is made, like you see the oven, it's made inside a concrete structure or a brick or soil, and it's covered around it where the were made. So that's you may be right. I'm not really very sure on that on this one.
0: Well, it's it, it seems a reasonable hunch, but <laughs> it's 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 my it's my part-time backyard historian coming out. Azure, let's take a moment out for a word from my sponsor. Let's talk a little bit about terminology. And one of the things that I bumped into when we were working in Tallahassee was we were, um, the thing I remember, and I got to tell you, it's still, <laughs> it is still the memory of what is the samosa supposed to be? It's the thing that Azure made that one day and, and nothing has come close, but you made a chutney. And so though this was interesting. So with my French cooking background, even though I've never left the country, chutneys to most of us mean that sweet and and sticky and sometimes a little bit of heat, uh, fruit gloppy thing, which looks like an extra thick jam. And you made a chutney which didn't resemble chutney to me at all. So I was like, "Well, (laughs) this is interesting." So. As far as condiments go, now maybe this is really a question about condiments and not terminology. Although it was an interesting observation, it seems that Indian food is almost nothing without its condiments.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say that, but condiments play do play a very important part in the different courses of the meal.
0: So, what kind of what 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 would one normally have with um, with dinner?
1: So they, they depending on whatever food you have. So we, I, I think uh, chutneys, so okay, let, let's talk about chutney a little bit. Now, so they most of the chutneys are served cold. Okay. They're rarely ever served warm or hot. What I've understood with the word chutney is anything which is made into a paste or ground is a chutney. Whether it is sweet and salty, whether it's savory, whether it has yogurt, whether it has cilantro, and there are various different types of chutneys. Uh, so anything which is ground with a mortar and pestle and a thick pasty is called a chutney. And you have similar flavor pickles, uh, the Indian word would be achar. And I'm not sure whether achar is a purely Indian-Indian word or is it a a Mughal word which came from uh, those kingdoms which were there at one time. So achar or pickle is something where you have whole vegetables and fruits pickled and spiced with different various Indian spices and oils. Now these pickles and uh, these chutneys and pickles are had as a condiment when you have blander Indian food, which would be, for example, the spice levels of these chutneys and pickles vary quite a bit. So you have bland chutneys also. So if you take, if you eat a spicy samosa, the cooling chutney would be something which would be yogurt, cilantro, and mint base, which would complement that particular samosa. Because you have different types of samosas, right? You have potato and chickpeas, and every region has a different. Samosa covering as well as a filling. And then the chutneys vary as a condiment to accompany that particular dish. So if it was something which was spicy by itself, it would have a cooling chutney associated with it. Now, if you had a bland uh, dinner item like plain yellow dal and rice, being pretty bland on its own, you would accompany it with a spicier preserve or a chutney or a pickle. Which would be on a spicier nature. That's that's the easiest way to make uh, to get into the difference between chutneys because of how the spices vary and how it is used in with what types of food.
0: A spicy pickle is an interesting idea. I know that we've got some of those here, but I, I don't. I'm I'm actually a giant wimp when it comes to heat, so that's scared. uh You scared to eat
1: it. And I don't blame you because I think I, I mean some of these spicy pickles are extremely potent, and uh, the amount of pickles you would eat with the type of food, which is a bland rice and a lentil, would be actually very less. So it's all about balance when it comes to some of these Indian spices and food. What has changed is the availability of these spices and foods. Is becomes so much more and easier. Uh, that we, when we go into historic uh, evidence of how these pickles and spices were eaten, they were eaten, some of them were eaten in farmlands where you would use the pickle or the preserve with some of the flatbreads. Because when you're working on the farm, you did not have a refrigerator or uh, you did not have the means to, con- to keep everything fresh. So you would get a thick flat bread. And you would accompany it with, with a, either a spicy or a black, or a sweet and salty pickle, which would serve as your sauce or some sort of something to for you to sustain it, sustain yourself. Over time, the avail the availability has become more. But that's the, that's the easiest way I could explain to you would be that chutneys and pickles are has accompaniments. But depending on what meal you're serving, you would serve those types of chutneys and pickles.
0: Right. Uh, You've mentioned flatbreads a couple of times, and so the most popular one—I—I'm feel pretty certain that the most—the one everyone's familiar with—is naan. Is there what? Are there other kinds of flatbreads, or is naan sort of the thing? And then depending on what region you're in, or maybe even maybe it's like miso soup. It changes based on which house you're in, so it's got a basic thing, and then depending on where you go. Is garnishes change, or are there more kinds of flatbreads?
1: Oh, there are hundreds of types of
0: flatbreads. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, there there are
1: hundreds of flatbreads. It's it's a broad aspect. Naan is uh, so we call it roti, R O T I. Naan would be a type of roti. Uh, So if you if you if you're sitting in a restaurant, you know eat. So okay, so naan is one way of cooking a flatbread. But then there is in naan itself, there are must be at least twenty-five, thirty different varieties of naan, depending on what toppings you can put on it, uh, what type of flour you use, what type of uh, proofing you do. Do you proof it with uh, yeast or yogurt or milk? Do you have it soft? Do you make it rich with butter and ghee? So it goes on into that aspect. Then you have parathas, which is made on... Uh, so Naans usually are made inside a tandoor or a hot oven would, would would be my understanding. And parathas and uh, other flatbreads are made on a f- flat top, uh, which we don't have... We, they used to not have flat top, but they would call it uh, a tawa. T-A-W-A, it's a taba, it's uh, usually made out of cast iron, now you do get it stainless steel and non-stick, but traditionally it was made out of cast iron or iron, and then you would just have heat from one side, you would roll the the bread with with a rolling pin, and you could either layer the bread with product in it, like aloo and uh, cauliflower, and make it into a stuffed paratha, or you just have a plain paratha so the list of breads would just go on i mean I, I don't i don't think uh that i would be able to explain that every region has a different flatbread so that that's you're basing you're basing those breads only out of wheat flour and whole wheat but then you go into bajra maize rice flour lentil flour and then the combinations of all these above flours Mixed into a flatbread.
0: Now that is fascinating, and from from someone who fancies himself a baker, that just is <laughs> very exciting. Because now mind. I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, I need to get some lentil flour and some chickpea flour, and I need to go play with these things. Because this sounds Correct. this sounds really fascinating, and I would imagine that until leavening with yogurt. I don't even know what this means. I have no concept of this. <laughs> So th- now I'm thinking. Ah, all right, now I got to figure out how to do this because now I want to try this because this is this is interesting, and I'm 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 pleased to learn this. I'm disappointed it took so long.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but but at least you learned it. That that, that's 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 a good part, right? At least you did something new. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah. Now I got to make this. I got to figure out how to do this. We spoke before, and so uh, what of Kind of my little, I don't want to say it's the thing, but I'm going to say it's the thing, is helping people find success with baking and cooking on their own terms. What that means is instead of trying to, rec- and if you can, that's great, but some people go to, a if if people go to Spago or Boule or Le Cirque or even someplace that's a nice dining restaurant in their town and say, wow, well, I want to make this and they go home and try, uh, if they don't, one of the reasons they may have not succeeded is they, it's not a fair comparison. That the restaurant, even, even the one across the street, has more resources than your home kitchen, between uh, access to better ingredients at a cheaper price, and staff, and lots of stainless steel counters, and it's just all, all, all sorts of reasons why you can't very easily recreate your your most favorite meal, so I want to change the expectations from "Don't try to make the meal you had." Work, of course, to make the best meal you can, but let's find the let's find a different way to succeed so that there is success, and the cook says, "Wow, look what I did! This is great!" As opposed to, "See, I told you I can't do it," and. I think when we get into something that's unknown, and so every nation's cooking to an American is mostly unknown, even even to somebody who's from France. Um, Indian cooking or Thai cooking or Vietnamese cooking is—it's just odd. It's just un, there's there's things that are not—they're um, not intuitive, and some of that is. So the spices, I think, confuse a lot of people, get scared because I don't want to make it too hot, which certainly could happen. So the how how can we find a way to encourage people who are willing to experiment with either buying some curry powder from the store or making their own and exploring curry? Exploring Indian food, exploring these new kinds of breads, exploring different flavors, and still assure them that if they've made something they enjoy eating, there's a real good chance that somebody in India made that exact same dish, so you're you're succeeding even if you think that you're not. <laughs> it's a really long intro. <laughs> what uh, as, as as a teacher because now you're an employer you're an employer you are in charge of people and you have people who don't know what they're doing and so how do you how can we encourage the listener the way you would encourage your cook to pursue pursue this dish and feel confident you've done a good job
1: okay uh, so, so the first thing is that depends on what what you're trying to replicate now in in Indian food, or any type of cuisine, there are some traditional favorites, which are what they are, right? And like you say, samosa. Now, the samosa which you know, or which you have had maximum uh, exposure to, is something which is filled potatoes, uh, green peas. It has cumin in it and it has a flaky pastry covering it. So, that would be if you look at something of that nature, what you're trying to replicate. Now, if you took the same samosa and say wrapped it up in a wonton shell, so the same filling, you take it in a wonton shell, there's a possibility that it could be some part of India which may have had that influence over all these years, either from China or from. uh, historic, I don't know, you could go back into history and there could be a stuffing which was done that way so you could possibly have made something which would have been of Indian origin and yet not taste exactly like the traditional samosa. So the answer to, to, your, to your question is what, what I'm understanding is, as much as they are traditional food items which restaurants make some of these restaurants don't always market uh, those foods in the true sense of what it may have originally been for various reasons. For uh, palate, you know, I mean, if you make something really traditional, not everybody likes it because then you have only a market range of only those people who are wanting that. So if you take a restaurant food item and you try to replicate it at home, and if you do change a few things around, with' still getting some of the basics, right? you still did a good job of it as long as it tastes good, and it's something which is palatable is how I look at it. Does that make sense?
0: It does, and I think one of the one of the ideas I'm working toward is uh is it probably is twofold at least that words on a piece of paper aren't gospel. It's a good guide, but sometimes either you don't like mushrooms or you don't have an ingredient listed, and that's not a reason to stop. So making a dish, at least honoring the spirit of the dish, is, and then being palatable and people appreciate it, say, wow, this is really good. I think cooking in that way and honoring the idea and the spirit of the dish and maybe omitting cumin because you don't like it or whatever as long as that happens i think that i think that kind of a success is really worth pursuing and that's the kind of thing that people who struggle with uncertainty over their cooking or baking skills I think this is the change, the expectation part. I I
1: totally agree with you, and I think, and I think a lot of it has got to do with people not wanting to think outside the box. Uh, and thanks for Google and the digital world, because say you do samosa, and you put it in Google, it's going to give you one of the most standard recipes which they assume, which is samosa, which is with potatoes and chickpeas, with potatoes and green peas and cumin in a floury pastry shell. And I think people tend to, and I'm stuck on the samosa right now, I think it's the easiest way to make someone understand it. People get stuck on that whole fact that that is the only recipe for samosa. So when they try something new, they always feel that, well, you know what? It is wrong. But they, like you said, the very fact that you try something and you can keep some of the concepts same and try out something different, that's what it would take. And I, and I think that's that's what creativity and cooking is all about. Uh, and for some reason, we as uh, chefs sometimes, uh, and especially with some of the newer chefs I see in the, in the workplace, they're scared to try out something new. Because they already have this preconceived notion that this is what it's supposed to look like.
0: That's an interesting idea, because because when I was when I, when I was a young cook, I was I was scared to to make a mistake because I thought that whatever it is I'm making, especially when you're talking about French food, because there is there certainly is there is yes. there's Trinidad Rossini, and then there's a thousand ways for it to be wrong. But, in terms of just experimenting and trying to put flavors together uh, now if you're if you're trying to make an Escoffier masterpiece well then the the margin for error is pretty thin because that's sort of well known and there isn't a whole lot of interpretation available really um, although if you if you read carefully, Chicken Maryland is fried chicken, so <laughs> knock yourself out um, if're <laughs> if we're talking about Um, provincial French cuisine, or provincial Italian cuisine, or Indian cuisine, or Vietnamese cuisine, then we have a whole other opportunity to succeed because, conceivably, somebody in Thailand or India or Italy or Vietnam has made this dish this way because that's what that cook preferred. And so I, th- I think having a a lower a, a lower bar, um, meeting the spirit of the thing, and this is getting redundant, is one of the ways we can get to success working our way up to making that really fussy Escaffier dish, which is going to take a lot of time. And depending on which one you choose, if it's something with uh, truffles or foie gras, you're going to be spending some money on it so let's not make mistakes things like that so
1: yeah but but if you go back into Escoffier's life he, he, the only thing different he did was he documented it and it became the gospel but he did the same thing what most of the other cooks would do is tried out different things in different ways and forms and shapes
0: and he did and he recorded all that too correct <laughs> <laughs> So, there's,
1: there, so that's, that's that's a big difference, you know. Uh, so he did try out different things. He did try out the ways it would fail, and then he decided that this was the best way. He liked it.
0: Well, that's an important observation. So the Guide Culinaire is the book of the successes. What doesn't exist, well, that's not really true, because if you look at uh, Le Livre de Menu, is his book in French of maybe all of his menus throughout his life or at least a good part of it. And there's, there's a lot of things on there that aren't in escafia in, in Laguide. And there might be a good reason for that, but that's, that's an interesting point that uh, Escafia wasn't batting a thousand. <laughs> it was a lot of things that didn't work. You just don't know about them and right. we don't know about them. Um, good point. Good point. Good point. Let's, let's move on for one second about dessert because uh, I love sugar. I'm a, Big dessert fan, and and I know that the idea of rice pudding is going to put some people off automatically. It's just ah, this is terrible. But I'm going to say, and I don't remember where it may have been Orlando. Um, I oh my goodness, um, it may I'm my memory's mixing it up, but it could very well have been a saffron cardamom rice pudding, which was divine. <laughs> it was absolutely spectacular. <laughs> so. Let's talk about Indian desserts for a quick second.
1: Indian desserts is as crazy as all the other Indian food. You have so many variations, but just one thing which is common that they all sweet.
0: And sometimes oh my <laughs> I mean sweet like boy howdy this. Yes. Like, yes. So you have coin.
1: you have something from extremely sweet to extremely rich in terms of fat or and you can have it rich even in terms of nuts so so simple thing like rice pudding, okay, you had the saffron version of rice pudding, but every every culture of india if if it's of a religious background or demographic location, they have different variations of rice pudding. you shocked?
0: no, I'm not shocked i'm I'm
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> So so they do have different... So they have rice and vermicelli puddings. They have only rice puddings. They have something called Firni, F-P-H-I-R-N-I. So it's a blended rice pudding, which is as smooth and creamy as ever. Those are some of the rice puddings I know. And then even in the rice pudding flavor profile, you have something which is served cold, something which is served warm. But the only thing common amongst all of them is that there's rice in it That's sweet.
0: And so tell me about some of the, probably pistachios, but maybe some other nuts. What other nut desserts are popular ones? Uh,
1: use a lot of pistachio, a lot of almonds, a lot of uh, cashew nuts, and I would say peanuts also. So those are, are the common used. Uh... Then there's walnuts, which is always used with some sort of uh, fruit like walnuts and uh, figs. They call it anjir in India. Uh, it's a very common, so then they have dates and almond desserts. And then they have some some sort of halwas and desserts. So uh, they, they call it halwa, H-A-L-W-A. Uh, that usually has a mixture of various types of nuts.
0: Very good. Well, uh, I have a few more questions for you, which you don't know about. This is my surprise. But before I ask you that, we, we, we've we've talked a lot about really spectacular food, but we've done nobody any help because we haven't told them how they can learn about this. So there are there a couple of cookbooks that you are aware of that you would say this is a great place to begin to learn about the spirit of Indian cooking?
1: You know, that's a real hard question you've asked me, Dan. I have practically zero Indian cookbooks.
0: So it looks like there's a market. Azur, get writing. <laughs>
1: I mean, honestly, I have never collected Indian cookbooks. I think there is one Indian cookbook which I collected when I was in culinary school. And uh, it was called Prasad. P-R-A-S-H-A-D. Prasad. And the reason why I collected that book, because that those recipes were written by actual chefs. Is that that little green book? Who worked in
0: yes oh my goodness there was that shrimp dish that had about nine thousand spice peppers in there for one shrimp <laughs> i don't know how anybody could possibly eat that drink.
1: but those recipes are good they're different but they're good they work
0: yeah but too hot too hot um well so what about people maybe there's uh um i can't say madra uh, joffrey
1: yes mother joffrey yes uh i would say sanjeev uh, i can't remember his name now uh san uh, right. it sanjeev is his first name sanjeev kapoor sanjeev kapoor he's uh, his recipes are pretty good yeah. uh, they're quite tried and tested he's, he was in he's an old school chef uh, cooked in very traditional ways and some of his tv shows do do out of justice to authentic indian cooking uh, I, 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 okay. I'll have to do some research on... TV All right, well, that's just
0: books. something that you can look for. So my last... This is, this is a real quick portion. Um, if you've ever seen the TV show uh, Inside the Actors Studio, at the end, he asks the actors some questions. And this is in the style of that. Uh, of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? Uh, sweet what's your favorite food i would say biryani aha uh-huh. what's your least favorite food
1: uh bread pudding which my mom used to make
0: <laughs> jack's recipe i assume
1: <laughs>
0: yeah what gets you excited
1: spices and the different things spices can do to food
0: right okay. what turns you off
1: when someone spends uses a lot of ingredients and the products will taste
0: like nothing. Uh, what sound do you love? Drums. What sound do you hate? Uh, scratching of a cat on a glass or something. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your favorite food indulgence? Favorite food indulgence? A lot of meats, which could be
1: a lot of grilled meats a what uh, is my favorite indulgence where it goes into kebabs oh, and nice skewered uh, tandoori tikkas and i think that would be my favorite indulgence
0: wow that's a pretty good one i like that all right azura my one and only friend <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which is uh, for anybody who wants to know i actually have more than one friend that is a um I'm I'm taking something from a fellow we worked with in Tallahassee, Tony Sykes, who, uh, when when things got really busy, Tony and I were each other's best friends. So thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. I'm sure you probably need to get busy because now it's three o'clock on your time. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan.
1: It's great talking to you after so many years, and uh, it's amazing. It, 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 when I'm talking to you... You know, the whole image of Tallahassee and working in Governor's Club is just like revolving in the back of my head. And uh, I can still hear the noises and rush of getting (laughs) lunch and dinner out.
0: (laughs) Oh, the rush of committee week. And we've got seven buffets all right now when you're already behind and get going. Yeah. um, It was a crazy time. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's it's impossible to you know. No one would yeah. believe it. No, I still remember. No matter. I how still food.
1: remember when we used to cook in that restaurant down. We had to go and get all the products from the main floor kitchen, and I don't know how many times I climbed the oh, steps. Right. I never had one of those Apple watches to calculate the number of steps I took, <laughs> but I could guess you, it would be
0: like you. You may not want to go. You know, well, remember how we got down, right? Flight by flight. Jump, 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 (laughs) jump. My knees are still shot from that. Oh, my God. Uh, Well, yeah, there was some, there was some lot of fun and and some, uh, not so much fun. Yeah. So it goes. Those are the war stories we get to laugh about now.
1: Yeah, we're laughing over it now, but I'm sure we cussed out every time we had to end.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Well, yeah, lots. (laughs) Lots of times when Jack was not pleased. I hear you. All right. Well, have a fabulous afternoon. Thank you again. I appreciate your time, and we will talk again soon.
1: Thanks, Ed. You take care.
0: All right. Bye bye. Bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. Whether you buy curry or masala already mixed or enjoy mixing your own to your own particular preferences, Savory Spice has a great selection of premixed curries, or the ingredients with which to mix your own. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice and shop the vast selection of dry spices and mixed spices. From curry to steak rubs and seasoning packets for wholemeal, Savory Spice is my go-to spice company. culinarylibertarian.com slash savoryspice. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matt Bankert at mattbankert.com.